All right, welcome to episode 13 of Dow Talk. This is your one-stop shop for everything Dow's. I'm Tommy. And I'm Frisian. All right, let's get into it. This is the week. Bear market, we think, has ended for at least a little bit. Temporarily, maybe. Shit has just popped off, as Frisian said last week. Just when you think it can't get any slower, things don't get faster. They just go absolutely batshit crazy. So let's dive right back into what we were discussing last week with Tornado Cash. We didn't talk too much about OFAC. Um, Virgin, you want to give a little bit of a background of what OFAC is, what it means for uh, this, the fallout from from the tornado cash sanctions from the U.S. Treasury. Just as a reminder, the U.S. Treasury sanctioned tornado cash and pretty much everyone and anything associated with it. Um, and we're still kind of seeing the fallouts from that and you know what that might mean for the future of Ethereum and other blockchains. So. Yeah. OFAC stands for the Office of Foreign Asset Control. And to be candid, I'm not sure I know too much more about it than that. <laughs> it's, it's a department within the, the Treasury um, that's, I think, responsible for um, trying to limit the access of like um, certain regimes to the global financial markets. Um, regimes like Iran North and North Korea, um, Russia right now also. And so um, they added Tornado Cast to the SDN list, which makes them a sanctioned entity, which makes it a crime punishable by up to 30 years in prison for any U.S. citizen to touch Tornado Cash in any way whatsoever. Um, so Coin Center, which is sort of like the leading kind of policy education group for crypto, they, they think um, that they're kind of signaling that they think that, um, that they think this decision is actually like illegal and, and unconstitutional because tornado cash is open source software. And in the past, um, OFAC has only sanctioned entities, which would be like companies or people um, who can actually like defend themselves in court and are in some way like liable or, directly responsible for their actions whereas tornado cash was just like publicly available code that anyone could contribute to and run um and you know if it is okay to sanction tornado cash there's very much a slippery slope argument to be made there where you know that opens the door for OFAC to sanction you know any kind of open source software that they don't like so you've even started to see other industry groups outside of crypto weigh in against this decision, uh, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is like a really big lobbying and education group around digital rights. So, um, yeah, so, so you know, this is already starting to play out from a policy perspective. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing Coin Center fight this. Love Coin Center. One time I donated to them and they sent me a Bitcoin shirt. It's pretty baller. You're going to be wearing yeah. that soon on the, on the cast. Even yeah, though you're soon, soon Bitcoin shirt. Oh my gosh. I, the one thing I, I just want to touch on here and I mean, we talked enough about it and I'm sure everyone's heard it. So we don't need to, you know, go farther into all of this because I think we all understand this is bad. This is not good. Let's see what happens. But I'm just curious, like who is making these decisions? Obviously we know like the office and the like part of the government that is making it, but I want to know like what is going on behind the scenes? I know we'll never know. Maybe we will, but I want to know, like, what are they thinking? What is their thought process? Are they running through all of these things? Are they understanding what they're doing? Or are they just like crypto bad? 
we must ban money laundering. North Korea is attached to it. We have no, but we really have no idea what's going to like, what this is, what this means for the actual space and like what we're actually banning. Like, I feel like they just have no idea what they're doing. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Some of the people who are more tapped into the policy side of things, I think have been kind of signaling that this is probably uh, not a fully considered action um, from OPAC, but I don't really care why they're doing it. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, it's just not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, (laughs) yeah, that's, you're a little more like, uh, you get a little more spicy when it comes to all of this. Which I think I will be eventually when I have a, the, like the knowledge base and the like grasp of like protocol level knowledge and like history of the space. But I guess as I think more about like like how do we? But like, what's the solution here, right? Like, besides a legal battle, like we can't just have like a legal battle every time something like this happens. Like, I think like if ideally we have regulation that is thoughtful and well thought out and like how does that happen we have to get people who are like who actually understand what's happening and understand the tech and understand like what this actually means in those positions of power but then you go deep into like well like why are the people that are in power in power and i don't think that's like what we need to talk about today in terms of like existential like why are people in politics in power like what like you know deep state and money and banks and shit like that. But I don't know. I guess I just kind of answered my own question as we were talking about this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, we can legally fight it every time something stupid is done and we will. Yeah. And that's why there's crypto lobbying groups. So, yeah. I th- um, but, but it's not just about fighting it in policy land. It's also about fighting it in crypto land. So you should pull up, um, does Eric Wall tweets. So here's the thing. We, we do need to fight this policy because it's unconstitutional, but also um, we need to be capable of resisting unconstitutional policies at the protocol layer in Ethereum. Um, and that's about decentralization and it's about censorship resistance and it's about individuals having control over the Ethereum network. And so this this ruling biofact really stimulated a lot of deep conversation within the Ethereum community about, you know, uh, if this was taken a step further and, you know, staking providers were sanctioned or Flashbots, which is like a kind of MEV protocol hub um, for Ethereum was sanctioned or Circle was sanctioned. Um what as a community would we do or could we do or are we willing to do to remain credibly neutral? And um, yeah, a lot, lot of great discussion there. It's probably a bit deep and technical to like really go into on this podcast. I think the one thing I want to mention is that is, is the one thing I want to talk a little bit about is why credible neutrality is not just like a priority, but actually existential for Ethereum. Um, the the whole point of Ethereum is for like a group of distributed parties that are anywhere in the world to be able to come to consensus on a shared global state that 
changes on a regular basis. And if you implement something like sanctions into the protocol that says like, okay, these addresses, they can't submit transactions or these types of transactions are not allowed. Um, you open the door to basically killing your ability to come to distributed decentralized consensus. Why is that? First of all, um, if that, like, I mean, the main question is like, what, like whose rules are you going to follow? Right? So if you follow the U.S.'s rules, then it's basically just like the USA fork of Ethereum. It's exactly the same as Ethereum today. It just has a few of the U.S.'s rules in it. But, and, and that's like not acceptable in and of itself, but even if it happened, it just opens the door for like, well, what about everyone else's sanctions, right? And then you sort of like, it the, the, the credible neutrality or even the ability to come to consensus on one platform uh, kind of erodes from there. So, um, so yeah, so this ruling by OFAC implies like it doesn't affect the core protocol yet, but it did stimulate a lot of very healthy discussion within the Ethereum community about what our values are and um, w like what can be done and what needs to be done to be able to resist um, even very powerful nation state actions. Yeah, the tweets we're looking at, if you're not watching the video, uh, there is a a good tweet prompted by Left Theris, who's really we've talked about him on Dot Talk before, a, a voter in Gitcoin and a lot of other really big DAOs. <clears throat> it was as a question for it, and then he tagged a bunch of the, the big stakers, Lido, Coinbase, Kraken, etc. Regulars, regulars ask you to censor at the Ethereum protocol level, which is you know what the everyone is kind of thinking of when they see the sanctions from Tornado Cash. You know, we could see the the writing on the wall. If they ask you to censor at the Ethereum protocol level with your validators, will you A, comply and censor at the protocol level, or B, shut down the staking service and preserve network integrity? And then the CEO of Coinbase, I hate that I said that net word on, on this podcast, but Brian Armstrong responded, it's a hypothetical we hopefully won't actually face, but if we did, we'd go with B, I think, which is shut down the staking service. Got to focus on the bigger picture. There may be there may be some better option or a legal challenge as well that could help reach a better outcome, um, which is encouraging to hear. I don't know if I believe that because, you know, it's easy to say it and tweet it when it's not happening, but when the foot's to the fire, like, we'll see what happens if that it, even happens it, down the line. It actually isn't that easy to say it. Um, as a public company CEO, like, he's basically sending a sig so. Ethereum staking is a huge, huge and growing part of Coinbase's business. And like, this is actually like material public now, material public information about like Coinbase's strategy with respect to their Ethereum staking business. And so like, it's actually quite consequential um, that, that he did say this in public. Um, hopefully he fully thought it out because sometimes Ryan Armstrong does things on Twitter that maybe aren't fully thought out, but, but it is consequential in some ways that he said this. Um, and I think it shows like the power of Ethereum, right? It's not Coinbase's Ethereum. It's Ethereum and Coinbase, you know, uh, builds Coinbase builds staking services at the, uh, pleasure of the Ethereum community and not the other way around. Do you think like he's saying this because 
he knows like what would happen if he didn't. And it would just soft fork. Like the users would just fucking cut Coinbase out. Yes, I do. Mm. Also, I think Brian Armstrong is like a kind of an ideological person who believes in credible neutrality. But I think the main reason he's saying it is um, is that they have no other choice, which is dope. Yeah, pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. We kind of skipped over this one, but another con- uh, another result of all this is Flashbot is open source. The Flashbot to relay version. What does this What does this mean? It kind of goes back to what we're saying about like yeah. So open source too. So Flashbots is really close to the base protocol layer. Um, they are kind of like an MEV service that is market dominant. Um, they're a critical part of the upcoming proof of stake implementation for Ethereum. Um, and they kind of like are implementing the initial version of proposer builder separation. Um, if you want to talk about what that is, hit me up on Twitter. Happy to chat. And, uh, yeah, they, they, they implemented censorship into part of their protocol and, uh, the, like, they, they implemented the OFAC sanctions and the Ethereum community found that to be unacceptable. And so there's a lot of work going on, not behind the scenes, just not on Twitter on like the ETH research and like ETH core dev discord to figure out, um, what to do going forward about this. And uh, this is a major step where Flashbots is open sourcing their relay. So um, it makes it possible to, you know, use it in an uncensored for, for other parties to use it in an uncensored form easily. So this is just one step, um, but definitely a significant one that was taken this week. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Moving right along a little update on the MakerDAO situation. For those who missed it last week, Maker or Rune, like the founder of Maker made a uh, forum post talking, or even I think it was just might have been in the Discord. I don't even think it was in a forum post talking about um, basically removing the USDC risk from Maker and selling, I think, roughly around like 3.5 billion USDC and converting it to ETH with a market buy, um, which is pretty risky. We talked about you know the risks behind that last week. We can go go watch or listen to. Last week's episode, if you want to hear more about that, but something I've been talking about this week is trying to figure out like what happened because there hasn't been much news around it. We have this tweet from Hazu who said he's deleted his tweets about MakerDAO. Seems I was giving crypto Twitter too much credit. Maker is not insolvent and die is safe. Talking about um, the fact that they didn't end up making that market buy. Frisian, did you find out any other information about this other than just like they decided not to do it? Or that it's pretty much we've kind of just like term determined they're too far down the rabbit hole in regards to USDC that they can't really do anything about it at this point. Yeah, I haven't dug deeply into this, so I'm just going to say something high level. Um, as you said, last week, Maker Governance irresponsibly discussed swapping Maker's USDC for ETH. <laughs> irresponsibly. Savage. Um, so, yeah, like... Uh, one of the things that having 50 plus percent USDC backing accomplishes for DAI is that it allows them to hold a very tight peg to one US dollar. Whereas if you swap all of that USDC collateral for ETH, it becomes much more difficult because ETH is quite volatile relative to the US dollar. And um, 
Dai's ability to hold that type peg is integral to many of the current use cases for Dai in DeFi. And so, yeah, like I think, I think it's going to be hard or impossible for for a maker to like as a business or a DAO or a protocol. Like you can't really just abandon their existing product market fit you have it's it just doesn't really work like that you like at that point you should just like start your own DeFi protocol right with the competing vision um you don't want to just like tank what the progress that's been made you know for an existing large protocol and now and so um yeah um i think that's really interesting um and i think it definitely opens the door for for you know competing more decentralized designs to try to get more traction over time yeah, interesting to see how this. So I'm sure we'll have more updates next week, or you know, shit just always pops off randomly. Yeah. And we'll have sections: the tornado gas section, the is Rune gonna YOLO a three billion dollar market buy of ETH section. Yeah, wild shit, wild west selling crypto. All right, moving right along into the Uniswap world. Anish, Anish, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but he's a fucking G in this space. Um, so, Frigian, give us a little bit of background, like quickly, about the Uni fee switch and then yeah. how it basically nothing has happened around it. And then Anish basically took matters into his own hand. Yeah. So, um, the Uniswap down has a lot of money. Um, they had billions for a while. It's probably around a billion now, the current market prices. It's all denominated, like it's all in their own token. And there's currently no source of revenue for the DAO. And there's no relationship between like the treasury and the holders of Uni. Like they receive no direct benefit from the Uniswap protocol or the treasury. And so, and at the same time, Uniswap is like probably the most important, you know, DeFi protocol. Um, it does an incredible amount of volume especially in V3. And so there's sort of an opportunity to kind of redirect some of the value that's flowing through that system towards the DAO and towards the holders of Uni. And so there are many in the community who want to see that happen. Um, there's some trade-offs there, of course. Um, one is, you know, it definitely makes Uni look more like a security. Another is that, um, you know, the fees have to come from somewhere. And so it might actually affect like Uniswap's growth, you know, at this stage of product option to sort of like try to capture some value for the Uni token holders, but regularly gets discussed and has even been proposed um, in sort of like off-chain forums for uh, Uni to implement a fee switch. Um, but Uni governance, governance is sort of like heavily... There's some really big token holders who control a lot of votes and also control, in some cases, the ability to make a proposal. You have to have a ton of uni to even make a proposal in the Uniswap DAO. And uh, so some a lot of times those discussions, you know, they don't really make it to an on-chain vote. Um, and, uh, and so uh, Anish, basically, um, he created a proposal like an autonomous proposal that anyone can uh, basically like delegate their uni tokens to up to an amount that, uh, you know, it will just 
be submitted because it, it has enough you need to meet the threshold uh, to submit the on-chain proposal. So um, it's just a way to try to activate the community if anybody wants to actually make this proposal, which I personally think would be awesome. Um, not because I personally necessarily think the P-switch should be turned on because I think it would be very healthy for there to be a real on-chain vote about this. Uh, and then you just swapped out. So I hope we get to see that. Plus, I just love drama. So it'd be dope. For you to love drama. What is that a surprise at all? Not at all. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go to some tally news. Tally's live on Mirror. We had our first article posted on Mirror. You can go collect that right now. Let's take a look at it. Returning stakeholder rights, DAOs, and mutualism from our friend Elizabeth Barnes. If you're not familiar with Mirror, it is a Web3 native. Like It's really one of a kind, in my opinion. You can compare it to like Medium or Substack, but it's really not. Um, and no one has collected it yet. So <clears throat> you can go on Mirror and collect this as an NFT. Virgin, anything you want to touch on here? Yeah, we're stoked. Tally.mirror.xyz. Um, we're going to publish more on Mirror and not just on Medium, um, along with the whole discussion about decentralizing uh, everything. You know, to Mirror um, allows you know us to have more kind of Web three ownership over the content that we're creating, and um, there's a lot of cool like Web three enabled features, like being able to collect the article and stuff like that that come with it. Um, so we're starting to publish this piece. It's really good. Um, kind of talks about some of the holes that shareholder capitalism has created in society and how DAOs are a way that we can kind of work together to close some of those gaps, which is uh, really cool. And yeah, keep an eye out for more from, uh, from Tally's Mirror. Hell yeah. And then let's go and do some Content Guild news. If you are not familiar with Content Guild, Content Guild is Tally's not Tally's DAO, it's, it's a DAO Tally, and the Tally team has created. Here's a little tweet from yours truly. Let's give a little bit of a breakdown of what it is. If you're a DAO content creator, writer, being, hobbit, enthusiast, practitioner, hobbyist, LARPer, star, we're creating the DAO that's going to connect your content to money. Discord right now is invite only, and we're just giving it out to contributors who have already contributed to Tally's content and DAO content, but it will be public soon. We're working on integrations with some friends at Guild, and also we're building out NFTs for contributors. It will be token gated. It will be awesome. We already have the DAO functioning pretty much. We've um, paid out over like, like three or four thousand dollars in uh, funds from the actual DAO. You can go look at that at tally.xyz and go to the content guild. Just search for it on the homepage. Homepage super fast, super cool. You can go see everything that's happening there. We are building it in public. All of our operations are public. The Discord will be open soon. If you're interested, hit up me or Tyler slash Frision on <laughs> Doc, sorry, um, on Twitter, o- uh, OX Frision or Tommy Lauer on Twitter or just DM Tally XYZ. But we're really excited about Content Guild and um, what we're building there. It's going to be really, really awesome. Oh, yeah. Well said. Um, I got to go catch a flight. So this has been a great episode of Dow Talk. Great week uh, in the crypto space. And look forward to seeing all of you. Keep talking with y'all soon. All right, let's bring this thing home. We had the DownYC panels being released currently on Twitter. So if you missed DownYC or you want to check out full panels, we have over 12 hours of footage that's released on the YouTube right now. 
three out of the four have been released. So there was two stages, a morning session and an afternoon session. And the morning session and the afternoon session for one stage have been released. And then the other two are currently being released now. So if you're listening to this, they're probably out. They will all be out by August 19th, 2022. Head over to Dow NYC on YouTube or to the Twitter Dow NYC XYZ with underscores in between each one. And you can check out each one of those. Otherwise, we will see you next week for Dow Talk episode 14. This has been a great episode, a little bit shorter uh, these past couple of weeks, but I'm sure we'll dive into mo- some more um, in-depth discussions when Frisian isn't having to fly out. But we make it happen each week. We'll see you next week. Peace.